The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to another episode of The Liberating Arts. With me today is Chad Wellman, who is a professor of German studies at the University of Virginia. He also chaired uh, recently the curriculum there to design a new general education curriculum and to uh, has co-directed that program. And he's the author of several books. Um, I first uh, encountered Chad through his book, Organizing Enlightenment, which I, I would commend. He's also uh, edited and, and collected some, some essays and, and speeches from Nietzsche. And we're here to talk with him today about his new book that he co-wrote with Paul Reiter titled Permanent Crisis, The Humanities in a Disenchanted Age. So welcome, Chad. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, it's great to finally uh, be able to talk to you after all these years one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. So thanks for the invitation. Very generous. Yeah, and I hope we don't depress our listeners too much, that there's uh, at least some hope. Because I found your book, while both bracing and um, challenging, also ultimately uh, you know, telling the truth it creates grounds for hope. So understanding what the humanities are and the situation that they find themselves in, hopefully uh, prepares us to, to navigate the, the permanent crisis in which they always find themselves. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see, I, I see it as a, as a hopeful project. I'm not sure if that quite came through, but at least that's where I am today, Good. having written it, so. Well, I wanted to start off by asking you to kind of just define the humanities. Um, in the book, you largely avoid giving a kind of normative definition to the humanities and instead trace a genealogical one. Uh, but what are the humanities and how are their modern instantiations different from the kind of earlier traditions that they often try to tie themselves to? Yeah, no, and this is a, it's a crucial, it's a crucial distinction, uh, you know, the distinction that you just intimated, at least for this, for our book, for Paul's and I's book, this distinction between what we call the modern humanities and prior traditions, prior humanistic traditions of learning, such as, for example, the Studio Humanitatis, right? So whereas the Studio Humanitatis or classical forms of learning, various forms of um, philological practice were just that. They were uh, you know, ways of reading, ways of engaging with texts, ways of uh, engaging with, with rhetoric and reflection upon those um, across various disciplines uh, or disciplined ways of thinking. They were always, at least within the university, they were always preparatory, right? So the Studio Humanitatis, once they were finally incorporated into the university over the course of the 15th and 16th century, they prepared students to move up to the higher faculties, right? So they were always a lower faculty affair and they prepared students for, you might say, professional study in theology, 
in law or medicine. So they were always oriented and had their end, at least within the university, in another study, right? So you, you needed to be able to speak well, to write well, to read well in order to uh, become uh, a priest, in order to become uh, a, you know, a lawyer or clerk in a court in order to practice medicine. And I think that that's, that's key for our understanding because the modern humanities, at least as, as we tell the story, um, over the course of the 19th century, and especially over the course of the 20th century in the US, they acquire or at least assert a certain um, sense of self-sufficiency, right? So the humanities don't become modern until they become self-sufficient until, you know, for example, one example of this would be um, humanities disciplines such as philology or history, finally uh, offering PhDs over the course of the 19th century in German universities. So it's that distinction between self-sufficiency and preparatory function that is a, is a key premise uh, for our book and all of the consequences and entailments that, that follow from it. And of course, that's an institutional kind of conception in genealogy. Um, but that's, it's central to our argument because for us, the modern humanities really are a function and they serve a particular function within the modern university. And that function puts them in the service of the system as a whole and thus inherits uh, or endows them with permanent tensions or permanent crises. Yeah. So if you don't buy that, then you, you, know, you can stop after page I think about 15 and say, no, no, they're fully, they're fully continuous. Uh, or maybe, you know, maybe we'll convince you otherwise, but if you don't buy that, then uh, the, the entire argument is not going to make much sense. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to start there. And you do, you do come back to it, I think, recurrently throughout, throughout the argument, but uh, that's helpful. And, and I think it's important to get that distinction before uh, the rest of the conversation. I think it's also interesting though, that it's not just a sort mm -hmm. of uh, origin story of the humanities, but it's also, you know, part of your argument also is that there are, uh, it's a cyclical pattern, right? Like these sort of the same discussions keep happening. And so some of the discussions we have today about the humanities actually sound quite similar to ones that first emerged at various moments uh, in Germany in the 19th century. And so I wondered if you could just kind of sketch uh, for listeners what at least some of the, the centrifugal or the fragmentary forces were in the, in the 19th century Germany that motivated people to begin seeking uh, unified forms of knowledge and then locate these, it seems primarily uh, in humanistic study. And I guess, you know, what ways might this at least motivation for, for some kind of unified knowledge be a good thing, uh, but also how can it be, be dangerous? Yeah. Um, you know, to, to start off in the, in the 19th century um, German context, which is, is, which, which is where we start off, start off uh, the humanities, or even before that, um, in the first decades of the 19th century, Allgemeine um, Bildung or Allgemeine Wissenschaft is a universal knowledge or universal education became, quickly became a stand-in for this unified learning project. Right, so the University of Berlin um, articulated and then finally established in 1810 as supposedly this grandiose unifier of knowledge. Um, 
it was, but it was ultimately a bureaucratic project. I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest. It was a bureaucratic project that attempted to establish these norms of, of a unified collective uh, project of knowledge. And that I kind of tell that story in my, in my last book, Organizing Enlightenment. Um, but within several years, the laments about this institution's failure uh, already begin. Or actually, it begins before it already began. Right uh, before you even had the first lectures at the University of Berlin, they had to push it off because they didn't have enough chairs for the lecture hall. Uh, they had to push it off because they didn't have the faculty already hired. So this constant attempt to recover that origin at the very origin plays out over the course of the 19th century in, in these institutions. And so within 20 to, to 30 years, and this again, just a, a kind of a micro story in Berlin, um, you have already, after these laments, uh, constant laments about fragmentation, philology as a specialized science, um, you know, theology, the conflict between theology and philology. Tal Howard tells great stories about that, about the competing pressures there. Um, and then in the 1930s, you have several Prussian bureaucrats come to, to the king and argue for the need for a liberal learning or this allgemeine Bildung, allgemeine Wissenschaftlichkeit or Wissenschaft. And that, that, that request, to my mind, stands in for this longing for the unity of knowledge, that we need a liberal form of education, we need a universal form of education, we need a humanistic form of education to fully develop these Prussian bureaucrats who are so specialized already, you know, we're only in the 1830s, um, that one bureaucratic department can't talk to the other, right? And within two more decades, the stand-in term becomes, and this, and within those two decades, the empirically-based natural sciences are really ascendant, uh, finally in Berlin in the 1840s and 1850s, really kind of taking over these institutions. And so the lament um, is ratcheted up a bit more, and it's no longer simply liberal education, um, but what then become the, the Geisteswissenschaften, right? Or the, you know, the sciences of the mind as it were as a kind of a bad translation, but what we just call the modern humanities. But it, at, at each instance, the humanities or liberal education become a name for all of that, which is lacking. All of that, which the current educational project, the current cultural knowledge project has failed to accomplish. And one of the best, I think, or the most crystallizing formulations of this is in the early 1890s um, in Freiburg, there is a, a meeting, or there has long been in a, a society for natural and physical scientists. But then the all the other university faculty, they, they start talking amongst themselves and they finally call a meeting for all of those faculty members who are not members of this natural and physical society, uh, physical uh, science society at, at the University of Freiburg. And they, they come together and what they end up on, what they articulate is what we need now is something called the not natural scientific disciplines, right? And you know this is in, in the early 1890s. And so the not natural scientific disciplines, that's what the humanities are on our account. They're that which is missing, that which is lacking, and that which promises to finally compensate for the various institutional failures, the various 
uh, lacunae, the various holes in the systems of knowledge. And we just call that the modern humanities. Good. Yeah, I think that's that's a helpful. And, and, and particularly your account in the book of that last meeting was quite fascinating, I think. And, and so I want I want to uh, to invite you now to critique uh, the, the liberating arts project that that uh, this is part of because uh, in a way I think our our very project could be seen as one more instance of this self understanding uh, of a situation in crisis. Um, you know we we got together last spring during the pandemic and started talking about you know the. the perspective cuts to the humanities uh, and the economic price pressures that we saw were, gonna, were going to result. And then the uh, last summer's protests about racial justice, I think highlighted for many people, uh, the kind of ongoing social problems that education may not be uh, addressing very well. And then people like me lost our job, you know, several people in the project actually lost their jobs last year. And, and it's, uh, in these kind of times of sort of economic scarcity, um, you, you feel like, oh, the humanities are in crisis. So uh, by framing, you know, I'll, I'll just say one thing that's a little bit different is that our project has included the sciences, I think, more. We're, we're relatively underrepresented in the sciences, but uh, we have one very good mathematician on our group and um, have tried to talk about the role of sciences and math uh, as human arts and not merely professional or technical disciplines. Um, but I still think that, that there are ways in which I guess our, the, the framing of the project uh, partakes in this long discourse. So in what ways, I guess, are we just part of this same old secular unhelpful conversation? Uh, and what might it take to actually reckon with um, the, the, as you put it, the, the crisis discourse and its complexities as we consider the possible future of a liberal education. Uh, first of all, let me say, um, I'm sorry to hear, uh, and we, we, we talked about this earlier, um, about your job. In, uh, and I have a new job now, so it's... Yeah, yeah which is good but, to hear, but nonetheless... But you've the got structural problem... You know, your family. Yeah, right. And I, and I, and I, and I think, I think it, go, it goes directly um, to a concern that, that I appreciate you, you highlighting, which is the, our contention about the cyclical kind of permanent crisis nature of these things is not all intended to be dismissive um, and simply historicize away real tensions. And I think that's, you can fall off on either side of the horse there. And um, many historians do just that, you know, after you historicize, well, you're done. Right. You know, I, I think that, is at best maybe a first step. So uh, I, I wanna say that I think that's important. Um, and what I would say, you know, reading about your, uh, your project, but also just knowing your work more broadly, I think there's a pretty significant difference um, in what I, what I take to be your aspirations with, with the liberal arts and what we're calling the modern humanities, which really are uh, a functional space within the modern university. Whereas the liberal arts have historically and currently do some, sometimes uh, by accident uh, or, or almost by an act of contradiction, find themselves in universities. Um, but the liberal arts, broadly speaking, very, you know, very much like or the 
um, studia humanitatis or these prior traditions that are often laid claim to by the modern humanities, they're, the fact that we find them and we think of them now in terms of universities and a university notion of higher education, attaching it to a BA, attaching it to PhDs, attaching it to uh, a job market, right? Attaching it to losing a job at a university and having to go somewhere else. Um, those are, I would argue, relatively recent phenomena. Of course, you're talking, when you talk about me, when I say relatively recent, I don't mean just the past few decades, I mean the past few centuries, right? So that, get, get that straight. Uh, I, think, or I think it's important to get that straight. Um, so when I read about your attempts and your colleagues' attempts to recover, but also reinvent the liberal arts, I very much, I have a lot of sympathy. In fact, it's what I've, it's, kind of, it's how I see what we've tried to do here at the University of Virginia. Um, but I think it's crucial to not do that in the name of the humanities because a liberal arts tradition is much, much more capacious than the modern humanities as a, as a set of professionalized, specialized, expert-oriented forms of knowledge that are based in the university. And I think that's important. And you know, you mentioned at one point, you know, in, in the questions that you sent me, you, you mentioned, you know, C.S. Lewis, might C.S. Lewis um, be an example in his, uh, was it 1939, uh, yeah. uh, learning in a time, learning in a time of war. Um, I think it's an important comparison because if I remember correctly, he starts off there by using the, he, he defines the university as a society for learning. That's right. One among presumably several possibilities. And definitely if we think historically, that's the case. And so learning the liberal arts are not necessarily tied to the university, much less the university as we currently understand it, um, it in the US today, for, for example. And so I think that, I, I find that, if that's historicizing, I find that possibly very liberating because what it does then, one, it doesn't tie it to a specific form and it doesn't tie it to a specific institutional form. Um, and two, it allows us to think much more capaciously about the forms historically these forms of knowledge have taken, but also to imagine and work towards collective cooperative projects to realize those forms today and under the different conditions that we embody today. It's, it, it, I know it, it's painfully obvious to say, but um, I feel like especially those of us BA credentialed uh, reading uh, folks uh, around the world, the university is not the only place where intellectual work happens. And um, we, we, we make that mistake all too often. And so part of the book is, is, is telling that, and especially in terms of you know, what people sometimes refer to as humanistic learning. I think that's a mistake that is so obvious that we forget and allow the humanities to be conflated with humanities departments, humanities PhDs, humanities forms of current research. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, and a lot of the conversation partners that we've engaged have been people, uh, I mean, uh, most of us in the project are academics, uh, but a lot of people we talk to have been people who are uh, trying out these new other kinds of institutions. And I think there's a lot more hope in some regard for these non-university institutions. Uh, on the one hand, they oftentimes have financial constraints. They don't have the prestige or the economic clout uh, of, an of a university institution. But they also uh, have some advantages in that they can be 
more nimble, uh, less, less bureaucratic, and um, sometimes more hospitable homes for uh, liberal learning or these other traditions. And I, I think, I mean, uh, one thing, acknowledging the constraints, as you call them, I think those constraints can also open up a liberating space to actually think about the intrinsic goods of liberal learning, as opposed to the more short-circuited route to external goods, prestige, credentials, uh, capital accumulation, economic contributions, those other institutions or those other, they're not, it may not even be institutions yet. You know, there's those para, those para places where people uh, practices kind of learning um, can, can give a little space and I think free, uh, free somebody from the exigencies of, of giving a robust account of kind of provable external uh, externalities or something. Yeah, one of the places or one of the sort of alternative traditions that I kept thinking about while reading your book uh, was that the, the tradition that Alan Jacobs discusses in the year of our Lord 1943 and all these sort of British folk, uh, not, not entirely British, um, European, uh, kind of, I guess, recognizing the ways that the modern humanities and modern humanistic learning was perhaps captured by the kind of technocratic, bureaucratic um, forms of society that were responsible for, uh, if not the war, uh, World War II, at least responsible for uh, waging that war, right? At least, um, yeah. So I guess, are there places, other traditions that you would point to like that? Uh, are, there, are there any sort of modern instantiations, uh, whether at a, at a UVA, you know, a sort of pocket, maybe um, the new curriculum you helped develop there, uh, maybe a sort of honors program here or a, a smaller theologically rooted college there. Uh, are, are there other contemporary institutions that I guess have a stronger claim to participating in this more capacious line, lineage of humanistic education than do you know uh, a, a large public research institution? Yeah, no, I think we're we're right in the in the midst of that struggle right now to not just imagine, but to work to build and create social collectives and you know forms of uh, social solidarity to to not just announce these norms and ideals, but to try to work and create conditions for people to to participate, uh, for people to to read together, to think together, and to undertake liberal learning in a, in a whole host of ways. You know, I, you know, I'm only now kind of coming, you know, coming late to this, <laughs> you know, people have, have, have been uh, there long before I have, but two examples and, and that I'm currently very kind of neck deep in are what I mentioned, you know, the, the new curriculum here at UVA, trying to create a cooperative of faculty across the arts and sciences which educates about 70% of UVA's undergraduate population. Um, and this isn't, inter and it's explicitly not interdisciplinary, right? It's, it's, it's drawing faculty together to form um, a corporate, or to take corporate ownership of a, of a curriculum for undergraduate students. And I think that 
I found a lot of kind of the intrinsic goods that I've, I've talked about there. Um, another program I'm involved in is just kicking off this semester. It's called UVA Edge, um, but it's a it's an adult learning um, project, which of course adult learning has been going on for quite some time uh, in, in all kinds of form, whether it's you know prison education programs or whether it's community colleges which educate um, a whole range of age groups, not just your um, idealized 18 to 22 year old. But UVA as a you know fancy public research university has explicitly not engaged in that. And so I'm teaching a night, you know, a nighttime course, uh, a night, a night course on this, um, or not on this, but it as, as part of this. And it's forced me to, to rethink in very practical terms, as opposed to the theoretical terms, which I can too often devolve into, uh, what it means to engage in um, higher learning as opposed to say higher education. And, uh, and, and the biggest hurdle that I have faced thus far with, with, with the students in this class are about 40 students who range from a 22 year old pipe fitter uh, who just finished an apprenticeship here at UVA. They, they have a trades apprenticeship program here um, to several widowed women uh, in their mid sixties who have retirement square in their vision and yet still want to try to complete uh, their BA. And to a person, every one of them acknowledges two things. One, that they didn't know that what they did as a job involved knowledge. It could be construed as knowledge. And you know, the sense that knowledge is, is, is an honorific that can only be bestowed, uh, bestowed on certain forms of thinking or work. Um, and so just this excitement about being able to read marks, for example, like we did last week and relate it to their work in the health system at UVA and to be taken seriously uh, in, in, a, in a college setting. That, again, with every single one of them has always been paired with an utter, a, a sense that, that uh, they are somehow not dignified, that socially they have not been accorded dignity and worth because they don't have a BA, which in a small, wealthy college town like Charlottesville, I don't think should surprise anybody. But that juxtaposition, the pure excitement about learning, pure excitement about, wait, this is philosophy? This is literature? I thought that wasn't for me and the utter sense of shame and lack of dignity associated um, by the fact that they're identified as non-college edu educated is, uh, to me, that's the, you know, where the rubber hits the road on these questions. Yeah, you can see the damages that are caused in the broader culture when humanities, disciplines, humanities, knowledge, and universities try to, or are portrayed as kind of owning those forms of knowledge and being the arbiters of what counts, uh, that other forms then then lose social capital uh, to to the detriment of the people, many people, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it wrapped up very much. You know, this is part of permanent crisis, telling the story of professionalization, expertise, and specialization. On the one hand, there are many goods to come from that, right? I mean, selfishly, I can have self uh, health insurance, a salary, and a parking spot. 
and access to a great library because of expertise, professionalization, and specialization. Um, I think also it it it, uh, it it provides support for the intrinsic goods that we talked about in a way that um, previously had not been uh, provided for or so directly. But the the other side are those costs, right? That that the first function um, in terms by excluding through monopoly um, by claiming uh, a special dispensation over things that are that are goods that I think ought to be more broadly shared. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the other themes that runs through this permanent crisis uh, is the danger of overpromising what the humanities could offer. I think you mentioned Matthew Arnold a couple of times, but as an English person, he, he's the one who comes to my mind, uh, who's kind of participates in the same tradition on the, on the British side of the channel. Um, but, but as you point out repeatedly, moral formation or the sense of building requires subordination to an authoritative tradition. And it's not at all clear, or it certainly hasn't been clear the last couple hundred years, that the modern humanities can muster the moral authority to apprentice students to this kind of formation. So should students give up on the task, sorry, sorry, should universities give up on the task of moral formation? Uh, or should they reframe the kind of formation that they uh, have, a, have a right to offer? Or you can take a third. I, I don't want to box you in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. I'll, I, my my option is always to take the third option. Um, I think they uh, should one understand that uh, they're as educational institutions, they're going to form people. I mean, right. that's that that's what education is. Um, I assert, <laughs> but with a lot of good folks, uh, you know, standing on a lot the shoulders of a lot of good folks. Um, so they're going to form people, whether they acknowledge that or not is a different question. Um, more normatively speaking, what I, what I would argue is that instead of over-promising over the type of robust moral formation, kind of the, the soul shaping as it were, um, I would argue that universities ought to be in the business of inculcating students uh, into small end norms right, uh, the norms of disciplined practices of thinking, disciplined ways of knowing, and what we have right now in the modern university and have had for about, you know, 150 years, 200 years or so, um, are, is, a, is a certain form of disciplinary knowledge, um, the kinds of things I, you know, talked about in organizing enlightenment, and I think the key there for me what would be to say that, yeah, these are proximate, not ultimate goods, um, but they're goods nonetheless, right? The, the kinds of virtues, the kinds of intellectual ideals that disciplinary forms of thinking and the ways of thinking that a good university, a good college can, and I would argue ought to form students in, have real goods to offer. Even if those goods are not what some might say are called ultimate, even if those goods aren't tied to one distinctive telos or one distinctive and shared notion uh, of, of the good or the good life. So I think that's the, the distinction that, that I would draw. Moral formation, yes, in the sense that it will form and hopefully affect the way people act in that regard, but not in terms of offering up a coherent 
worldview or one unified overarching notion of the good or, or talos well yeah now you set me up for my i next. know yeah yeah i know where so, yeah go for it so this is a long question and i said it ahead to chad so he knows it's coming uh and and i'll also admit that a lot of this this is the kind of question that was on my mind after reading organizing enlightenment um but but in in the book you quote andrew dixon white who's cornell's founding president and he he argued that American universities could only hold together liberal and practical ends uh, if they overcame the American sectarian college system. So instead of universities, which, and this is a quote from uh, White, I think, which try to deliver ready-made worldviews, uh, you all argued that the modern research university is distinguished by particular ideals, practices, and values, and its purpose is the advancement of scholarship and the education of students according to scholarly norms. I think you just described these as, as sort of small in norms, right? Uh, and you, you say in the book that these are not ultimate ends or values, but they are ends and values. Um, so here's my question. Is it really possible to um, sustain a pared down humanistic tradition? That's one that's marked by a shared set of practices, but not necessarily a shared vision of the or a human good. And I, I'm conflicting here, Chad, because I actually really do appreciate your critique of those who um, try to make the humanities stand in for religious goods. And I think that's been a big problem. And I don't think it ends well. But I'm also not convinced that a more pared down humanistic or, or liberal tradition can be self-sustaining because it seems to me that it, it tends to inevitably get co-opted towards some other end. Again, the theological end, you talk uh, in the book about times where it gets co-opted to the Nazi state or other, other state forms, uh, training students to be good democratic citizens. Of course, I think we all experience the ways that uh, the modern economy can co-opt liberal learning to be simply career preparation. And as I was thinking about this tension, uh, what came to mind, what struck me too, was your own writing about your frustrations with UVA in the wake of the white supremacist march. Wow, was that a couple of years ago now? Maybe three years ago? 2017, yeah. 2017. Um, and, and you wrestle with this in this, I, I would just commend people, I'll try to link to it in the uh, on the website, but I would commend this essay you wrote for the Chronicle about it. And in the conclusion, I'll just quote this conclusion because I think it's helpful for, for students, for listeners to get this tension. You say, when I welcome my students this Saturday, I will discuss white supremacy and the march but I will use language different than the one my wife and I used with our three children. To them, we spoke in the language of our faith tradition in terms of the image of God, the church and Christian love. When I speak to my students, I will do so in the language of the university and its traditions in terms of open debate, critique and the love of knowledge. So can these proximate goods uh, endure at a university that disavows a, a kind of shared telos for learning or are, are they ultimately vulnerable, um, untethered from a particular set of ultimate goods? Uh, and, and then I, I, I say it this way too, perhaps the simplest way of framing my long-winded question is this. If the permanent crisis of the humanities is a feature, and this is a subtitle of your book, of a disenchanted world, is the only viable solution to situate the humanities within a re-enchanted world? No, that, that's a... It's a great series of questions and questions that that I've been 
you know, struggling with since uh, you know, since my last book and since 2017 and trying to to think through and to work through and to to actively um, work with others and particularly here in Charlottesville uh, at the University of Virginia uh, in particular with. Um, so first off, I would say that I'm also not convinced. I would, I, I would say it's not possible that a more pared down humanistic tradition can be self-sustaining. I think it's the product of that is not only the permanent crisis, the permanent tension of the humanities that we, that we talk about. Um, there, well, there are many other entailments, and I'll get to those in a minute. And what I would say is that is exactly why the humanities operate as a function of a system because they aren't self-sustaining. They always have to be paired with the production of democratic citizens, the production of good managers, the production of cultural capital via, you know, BA credentializing, prestige status hoarding, um, systems of, of distribution uh, between the production of just capital. So they're absolutely not self-sustaining. I completely agree. And on the, that's a problem, but it's not a problem. Um, it's a problem for you know things that we've just been talking about, and I'll, I, I can address more in a minute. Um, but it's also what has allowed the system of the modern university to keep going and to constantly morph and reinvent itself because the content is irrelevant. The way the modern research university works. And when I say the modern research university, I mean broadly the modern system of higher education that is organized and structured, whether you're at a small liberal arts college, a community college, or a fancy R1 institution, at least normatively. That is uh, in terms of the production of something called research. That is in terms of the norms of professionalization. However unsuccessful they actually are in practice to, to claim or hold any power as we have seen through the constant struggles over adjunctification and contingent labor since late 19th century Prussia. And then currently now just newspapers are start, starting to talk about it. Um, so I think that system that is the condition of possibility for the permanent crisis is the testament to just what you said that no, this, this pared down tradition is not self-sustaining. In fact, it's never was meant to be, right? It always has to be pegged against something else. So the humanities and its function is always to, uh, to play the remainder. Oh yeah, ethics. Oh yeah, moral questions. Oh yeah, uh, you know, anti-Soviet Union and US Cold War uh, University. Oh yeah, um, you know, the not natural sciences. Critical. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Crit critical thinking, right? Oh yeah, the data science school needs an intro to ethics course. Oh yeah, the engineering school needs to tack on uh, the, you know, uh, uh, ethics course. The, the medical school needs a medical humanities course. These are all functional ways in which the humanities operate, but the tragedy isn't simply internal to something we might imagine to be the humanities. To me, the real tragedy is how that functions with respect to all the other parts of the university, all the other parts of the social system, namely to excuse science, engineering, data science, the medical school, bureaucratic specialization from actually and really and fully and constitutively engaging moral and ethical questions. 
No, that's the job of the humanities. That to me is the real tragedy, not some impoverishment of what we imagine to be the humanities, but to excuse all these other activities that yes, are have a placeholder in the university, but have bigger placeholders you know, across society to shunt them off and to cordon off questions of ethics and moral concern to one part of the division of labor. That's the most egregious effect, I think, of the permanent crisis um, that, that we try to trace. And so, um, yeah, no, they're not self-sustaining. And I, hell, I, excuse, I, mean, I wish universities would disavow, uh, you know, some shared talos, but they don't, you know, right. they, right. they, they reformulate it every six months with, with some stupid PR catchphrase. I think we're pursuing excellent or excellent and good. I don't know what we are this, uh, this year here at UVA, uh, but if only they, they were to disavow them. Um, but then what I take to be not that any of that, all that stuff is not important, <laughs> but what I take to be, to me, to be the real, Kind of crux of this and the one that kind of keeps me up at night is you know can can these proximate goods that i talk about uh elsewhere and kind of invoke can they endure yeah at a university i don't know about a university anymore i, I kind of um the, the book i'm trying to finish now and hopefully we'll finish this summer is called after the university so that might <laughs> uh that might that guy might kind of tip my hand as to, as to where i'm going um and what I, what I will say, and this is what I, the nut I'm trying to crack, I don't know if it can continue in the university, but it's got to continue in democracy because that in fact is the wager of democracy that although we might not share ultimate goods, we might not share a common uh, comprehensive worldview, um, we do need to share kind of small end norms. We do need to commit to a democratic epistemology whereby what I mean simply is simply taking seriously the pooled nature of knowledge that it can't, that it is everywhere that we have the eyes to see and to do it seriously and to do it disciplined and to do it well. And so in that sense, it's a very, you wouldn't know it from reading this book, probably, maybe. <laughs> you said you weren't completely pessimistic when you finished it. Uh, what, I, what I realized when we finished it and what I'm trying to, to do now is a completely utopian project um, because it will after the university and therefore everywhere uh, is, is where the human flourishing has to take place and the kinds of knowledge we need to do that, the ways of creating and sharing that is a radically utopian proposition. And we can no longer let the university monopolize those goods, I would say. And it's, but it's, a, and for all those reasons, as you, it's, yeah, it's extremely fragile. Um, it's, it's extremely fragile. I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about the argument is not, not just that, um, the other, you, you went through all these, you know, medical and engineering, et cetera. It's not just that they need the humanities and that they are uh, lesser than they must be without the humanities, but it's also that the humanities become deformed when they are uh, siloed and become uh, sort of made in the image of a professional discrete uh, good. 
this professional discrete kind of knowledge. And I think what you're articulating then is it damages both, both halves of the equation. I mean, it halves, but, um, and so yeah, finding some way to free the humanities from this kind of uh, disciplined and professional uh, structure, I guess, is as important as trying to, to fix the other kinds of professional knowledge. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think that's uh, definitely one kind of one entailment. It's uh, kind of a liberating. Pro what needs to happen is a liberation on both sides, uh, both sides of the court. The problem with the modern humanities is that they were, from the beginning, again, if you buy our narrative, um, ex negativo. I mean, they, they, they began on the basis of nothing, right? They began simply uh, in terms of as compensation for, and that is a very tough uh, project and place to be in, which gets at your questions yeah. about uh, the self-sustaining possibilities. I don't think they're, they're very high. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I do think, you know, if folks leave the, the conversation thinking that it's all doom and gloom, I don't think that's quite accurate because I think the conclusion in particular Throughout, but especially in the conclusion, you kind of wrestle with some of these, the implications of this history, I guess. Um, so, so I wanted to give you a chance to leave us with some kind of hope, Chad. Uh, you know, one possible conclusion, and I think we've uh, reiterated that here, is that humanistic learning is always in crisis within the modern bureaucratic university. That is its condition. But uh, that doesn't mean that serious intellectual life is always in crisis. Um, so what are the conditions for, yeah, serious intellectual life? Um, I, I think you've written about this and it sounds like you are continuing to write about this, but that the academy might be a threatened sub-community of the university or uh, might have to exist outside the university. Can we hope for a more hospitable institutional home? Uh, do we need to just work on uh, sort of defining and practicing the, the, the liberal arts and hope that institutional homes will emerge later. Uh, you know, wh where, where are the grounds for hope here for, for serious intellectual inquiry? So I'm, I think by, by nature or by uh, deformation, <laughs> I don't know which, I'm an institutional thinker, right? So I, I don't want to, you know, disavow as it were, my hope and you know the need for institutional forms of, of thinking and institutional forms of knowledge but also I think to a certain degree um, historically they, they constantly return I, I, I think we're in the midst of a transformation of kind of institutional forms of knowledge I think the disciplinary university already in the middle of the 20th century was 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 losing pride of place you know with regard uh, to kind of federal funding imperatives uh, during the Cold War, Silicon Valley kind of writ large, uh, research uh, labs, uh, NGOs, think tanks, all of these para adjacent somewhere alongside uh, the research university, right? So I think that this process of transformation isn't just, you know, since the Great Recession in, in, in 07. I think it's, it's been much longer going, not to mention Google, uh, for example, or Amazon, you know, being the biggest consumer of computer science forms of knowledge, right? And universities can't even get uh, or have a hard time getting computer scientists to come to come teach. 
Um, so I want to affirm kind of the, the institutional question. But I think, and we don't, we don't really talk about this in, in permanent crisis as much, but this is what I'm wrestling with in the new book. In that, what I want to affirm, what you mentioned, the distinction between the university and the academy. And, and under the academy, I simply, in, in one respect, what I simply mean is intellectual desire and the practices and habits and collective social forms that shape it. And I find, or I have found that liberating. If, if in, in a way since 2017, when the white supremacists marked across our, our backyard, um, then the very next day murdered uh, a young woman. And then my own struggle of frustration with the bureaucratic behemoth that was UVA couldn't muster a moral claim to save its life that wasn't routed through five offices um, of lawyers and PR specialists. Um, I think that distinction between the academy and the university has, has liberated me to say, well, I don't have to defend the university. The university is so many things. The university does so many things and so many things that are actually pretty good. I mean, I, I got my first vaccination shot at an amazingly well-run uh, vaccination clinic that UVA is, is, has been running. Actually, there are great and wondrous goods of, of the university, however behemoth and bureaucratic it be. But those aren't the goods that I'm really interested in, at least in defending, right? Um, I'll support and, and, and enjoy them and, and, and make a case for them in other contexts. But what I really have devoted my life to and want to devote my life to are the goods of the academy, which are the ways in which people across time and cultures have shaped intellectual desire and the creation and sharing uh, of knowledge, be it in the mon uh, monasteries, be it in libraries, uh, be it in universities, and be it after the university. I don't know what forms uh, those will take. I think we see, and you and your colleagues are participating in creating some. I think the, the adult education stuff for me has been a new entree, again, very much a latecomer to that, but that has really opened uh, my, my eyes to that. So that's, to me, very, that's, that's, very, that's very hopeful um, and, and, and exciting, right? To, to, to finally, maybe, after all these years, understand what I'm actually committed to and, and want to defend. And it doesn't have to be conflated with uh, the capital T, capital U university but is, is something else that, you know, by dint of historical accident got settled and fully conflated with this big institution. Yeah, it's uh, exciting and terrifying for those of us whose, whose livelihoods, right, depend on the university. Yeah. But, but I think you're right. Uh, I, I do think that's a good place uh, to, to begin working out hope. And I guess, uh, I'll now have to look forward to your new book, which I'm sure you're looking forward to completing as well. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Chad. I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you so much. And again, thank you so much for the invitation. It's uh, you're really, uh, wonderful, wonderful questions and, and challenging. It's great to finally be able to talk to you.